Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find that they cannot pass whatever legislation they want. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. The narrow range of policies that lawmakers can enact is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and the people changing what is politically possible. Now, we've spent some time on legislation and ballot initiatives, but there is an, also the arcane world of regulation where technical experts argue to technical boards for changes in policy and administration. And today I'm speaking with David Stevenson, the director of the Center for Energy Competitiveness at the Caesar Rodney Institute, a free market think tank in Delaware. While he argues for plenty of legislation in his role, he also advocates directly to the state's Public Service Commission, which is the state's electricity regulator, uh, for his policies and has some success in getting change through the commission's actions. Now, theoretically, we should have the cheapest, most reliable, least polluting production and distribution of electricity in the world. We can build plants at scale and we should have the know-how to put it all together. And given that it's a highly regulated field, our governments should have people's back to ensure that our electricity markets meet uh, customer demands in the most economical way. But it doesn't work out that way in practice. David, uh, before we get into the hows of electricity policy changes, I wanted to start by asking you how this policy works. Uh, Can you lay out the basic framework for who decides what power plants get built and what they get to charge for it? Yes, because this is a regulated industry, and and that really started back in the early 20th century, it was obvious that you didn't want two sets of power lines, generation equipment, all the things that go along with delivering electricity from two different suppliers. It would be an enormous investment and a duplication of effort. So monopolies were granted to certain utilities. And they have territories in every state. So it might be a uh, municipal, uh, such as New York, or in, in Delaware, it's this, uh, uh, 70% of the state is uh, uh, part of uh, a, the regulated utility. So the regulations are there to keep that monopoly from overcharging for prices and to make sure that they're taking care of both reliability and lowest cost and more recently, environmental issues. So a public utility commission is formed in each state, has different names. Ours is the Public Service Commission. There's five commissioners. They hear arguments from the regulated utility about what they need to do, what they need to invest in. When the commission agrees, they wind up with uh, the utility, regulated utility winds up with about a 10% profit margin on anything they invest or spend on. So, for example, uh, Delaware deregulated the power supply uh, portion of your of your electric bill, which includes a power supply, transmission cost, and then the dis- local distribution cost. Well, the power supply was deregulated. So, uh, even that deregulated power, when when the regulated utility buys the power, it gets marked up by ten percent. So, it, it's pretty profitable and. Uh, industry. And as you know, a lot of people invest in utilities because it pays uh, almost a guaranteed return. So it's kind of uh, in your in your portfolio, it's good to have some utility stock. 
Sure. So what do you want out of state energy policy? Well, you, you do indeed want that balance. You, you, you really uh, want the commissioners to, to look at all three things, uh, reliability, cost, and environment. Unfortunately, these days, uh, the environmental departments of a lot of state governments and the legislature are interfering in that process and putting their thumb on the environmental scale. And that really puts things out of whack. For example, our regulated utility, Delmarva Power, uh, what, uh, was the entire state was, was, was asked to, to, to meet a re- renewable portfolio standard mandate. As exists in a lot of places. Not, it, it's 39 states at one point. A few have already met their goals or pulled out. But it's uh, a requirement for so much wind and solar when it comes down to it. There's some other options that, that are allowed, but those are the two big ones. And there was a cost cap. Most of the states have a cost cap put in there. It's uh, in Delaware, it's 3% and averages 4 or 5% across the country, which says, if this cost gets too high, we'll we'll back off and uh, freeze it for freeze the re- increasing requirement for a while. So, in Delaware, when that mandate was passed, the municipal utilities and the uh, Rural Electric Co-op were allowed to pretty much meet that standard any way they wanted. They could go for the lowest cost. But what happened with uh, Delmarva Power is every time somebody had a bright idea of, uh, well, we ought to build this utility scale solar while it's still really expensive. Well, Delmarva had to wind up buying the energy credits from that at a ridiculously high price. Uh, They were forced to buy a fuel cell uh, project uh, from Bloom Energy, and that wound up being ridiculously expensive. It's adding about $35 million a year to electric bills. So what happened is uh, they wound up with a 20% 20% increase in the power supply cost when they added up all these all these projects against this 3% cost cap. Well, meantime, the rural and municipals stayed within the 3% guideline because they could do the most practical things. So you get this thumb on the scale, uh, out of control spending on a project like that. So... Um, you're coming at this not just as a person who's trying to change public opinion, but actually change the minds of these commissioners who are looking at these decisions, these uh, these requests that uh, monopolists are trying to uh, are trying to uh, to make. So, what tools do you have at your disposal to change the way that things go? There, there, it's an interesting uh, interesting situation. You have. In each docket or case that comes before the commission, the public is allowed to make comments and anybody can make those comments. And what you get usually is there will be a few people that have unique, uh, uh, deep comments, and then you'll get 10,000 form letters, uh, particularly if it's environmental issues, that all say the same thing, basically. So you've got public comments. You also can be a formal intervener. That means you get to see all the utility documents that there, there are things blacked out that are considered confidential, but you get to see most of the data. You get to see all the replies. You get to sit at the table during the hearings and, uh, and argue the points. Now, 
in a lot of cases, interveners have lawyers. We can't afford one. So uh, I, I almost went to law school. So you know, I'm <laughs> mostly on my own with some advice uh, once in a while from, from somebody else. So, so you do get deeply involved. And you also have the ability to petition the Utility Commission to take up a topic. So we, we have used all of those. Now, it is time consuming. Uh, I, I lobbied the legislature and spend maybe 5% of my time lobbying, uh, but I probably spent a third of my time with the Utility Commission. One of the advantages of that is they get, it's a very small club. There are a very limited number of interveners that show up time and time again. And they tend, to, once the Utility Commission gets to know you, they tend to uh, uh, listen a little better. And uh, if you have been credible in one docket, you carry that credibility forward. So I've, I've been doing this since uh, 2011, and I've built up a lot of credibility. First, uh, first case I got involved with was one of the most unusual with this fuel cell project, where I went in to fight that, and I was the only intervener that opposed it. And because of that, when there is, uh, when there is a not agreement, what, what, what usually happens is they try to settle uh, the disputes between interveners and not have a public hearing. Well, we were able to get so much public pressure, the hearing had to be held in the largest venue the state had. We had probably, we had standing room only probably Three, four hundred, five hundred people at the hearing. Usually, there's no one I wanted to hear, <laughs> and uh, it was a nine-hour hearing. Uh, I was on my feet for probably sixty percent of that, asking questions, and the only one asking challenging questions. Knew going into it, it was a foregone conclusion uh, we would lose. Uh, there was actually a. <laughs> When these hearings are going on, the commissioners are not allowed to get any information outside of the people that legally present evidence. But what happened was they were getting calls from very high level people telling them to pass this thing. So um, lost that case, but my credibility was so high. I understand from friends in the audience, the staff at the environmental department and the public service commission was who is this guy are we going to have to answer questions from him in the next docket we don't want to do that mm-hmm. so it, it was it was a very difficult uh, process but uh, well worth it so i had a couple more dockets and then at some point we have what's called in delaware a public advocate now the public advocate their only job is to protect ratepayers electric ratepayers electric customers from higher prices and at some point, the public advocate had a docket that I was not part of, and they got to a stumbling block the day before the commission was supposed to decide the case, and they asked me to be a witness. And I came into the hearing room and sat down as a witness, and they were swearing me in. And one of the five commissioners scooted to the front of her seat and said, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> and by the end of the day, we had stopped the case cold. Uh, we wound up saving electric customers about $2 million a year. And uh, so it, it, you have to build 
you have to spend the time to build that kind of relationship. And Delaware's a small state. Uh, the chairman of the commission lives in the next neighborhood over. Um, uh, the commissioner who scooted to the front of the chair lives in our county, and we run into each other all the time. So you're not allowed to discuss anything, and all that means very little except that you know you get to know each other. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of an interesting process, which is just, okay, we've got uh, regulated utilities. Um, uh, the Public Service Commission is to fulfill their public mandate, and they're hearing all these arguments. You can hear from the public, and there's a lot of public comments on this, a lot of people with an axe to grind. But then there are the special interveners where they listen to more intently. How does someone become an intervener? It varies a little bit state to state. In some states... I believe in Michigan, for example, I think you almost have to have legal representation, so it's a little more expensive. My uh, understanding is it's a lot of lawyers are involved in the intervention process. Yeah, and um, I, I actually sat down with Jason Hayes and you're in Mackinac Center, and uh, we did a training on what it takes. We actually looked at uh, um, is it consumers electric. Yeah, that's one of our... And, and Detroit, Detroit Edison actually read mm -hmm. through the last two big cases they had. And we sat down and we analyzed where things could have been challenged. And uh, we found some partners for Jason who were already ha already had legal, but could use the extra research tool. So Jason has gotten involved uh, that way. So sometimes you can find partners like I found a partner in the public advocate. Uh, we'll talk about another case in a while where I had a couple of other unusual uh, partners but so you, you you basically you you have to petition to be an intervener at the beginning of the case there's a limited amount of time 30 60 days after the case is uh, formally started that you have to intervene the commissioners have to improve approve your intervention you have to show where you have some unique uh, viewpoint or represent some unique uh, uh, customer base uh, to get approved to be an intervener. And as I said, it takes, uh, takes a fair amount of time. These things go, go on for years sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and cases go on for two years before they were complete. You're not constantly working, but you're, you're working on and off. And it takes a lot of research. Mm -hmm. So who else are the other, in your fellow interveners? Um, who else has a strong opinion on these rate cases? Well, uh, it, it, Usually there, there is a group in Delaware called the Delaware Large Energy Users Group. Mm -hmm. And these are about a dozen really energy intense businesses tend to be like oil refineries, chemical plants, uh, mm -hmm. bleach manufacturers use a lot, uh, air products kind of companies uh, use a lot. So you get companies like that who don't want to see premium costs. Unfortunately, one of the things they are so strong uh, that they get excluded from a lot of these bills. For example, a Del Delaware's renewable uh, portfolio standard, anybody using over a certain amount of power is excluded from paying for that. So that shifts the burden to everybody else because mm -hmm. the cost doesn't go away. Uh, yes, and and the, the basic concentrated benefits, like, you know, just get us out, don't include us, and we're fine with the renewable energy standard. Exactly. And that, you know, I look at Delmar with power. Um, you know, they're not the evil utility. I have friends there. Uh, they went through, there was a, a case to have an offshore wind project built off the coast of Delaware. And Delmarva fought that 
for over two years. I think that one went on for almost three years. Got sub, uh, wound up losing the case. There was a tariff for the offshore wind project, which never got built, but that's another story. Uh, but Delmarva used a lot of goodwill in fighting that case. And they, they basically made a decision. We will never fight another one of these projects uh, as long as we can get paid for the costs. So we'll we'll just add it to our rate our rate base and add ten percent to it. So Delmarva pretty much goes along with whatever stupid project comes up, to put it bluntly. Uh, unfortunately, uh, so but once in a while, uh, for one reason or another, Delmarva and I are on the same side. For example, there was a big docket on reliability, and uh, Delmarva wanted to invest in reliability, which was a critical need in Delaware. They did wind up getting approved for a certain amount. I actually argued for more, but you know, you win some, you lose some. Uh, usually, winds up in a settlement. There's only a couple that have gone to a, a full full blown hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, in other cases, uh, I'll tell you about the interesting one. Uh, we had a actually wound up being two different dockets. Delmarva uh, Power, as as a lot of utilities across the country are doing wanted to get into the electric vehicle charging business. Mm-hmm. Now they wanted that for two reasons. One is if they were the, if they controlled the charging, they would get the revenue from that marked up by 10%. Uh, there is there are various estimates of how much electricity use might grow if uh, if electric vehicles really take off. It's anywhere from uh, 30%, I uh, heard 50% the other day, and, and the most recent one, I said electricity demand might double if everybody went to electric vehicles. So they're looking at, uh, at at that. There's also the issue is 80% of charging occurs overnight at home. And uh, that's, if you ever look at the electric use, it, it, it's almost twice as much electricity is used during the day than at night. So you've got all this downtime for the uh, equipment overnight, and if you were charging overnight, you, you would flatten that curve. So they're looking, they're looking at that. Uh, what would that at, do, by the way? So I would that lower costs or increase costs then? Well, they argued it would lower costs. Uh, going through the analysis, and, and I'm not the only one that done it, has done it, that it would probably raise costs because you, you still need. Uh, a lot of extra infrastructure to make all this happen, including including the charging stations. And uh, I, I think it's going to be more more of a wash. Um, it's not going to cost a lot more, but it's going to not going to save a lot. But what what will cost is when you start doing if Delmarva does the charging, obviously they add ten percent profit to it. Now. Across the country, the average margin, profit margin for gross profit margin for companies is about five, six percent. So you're going to wind up paying more for the for the electricity. So the docket was uh, the first docket was does Kendall Marva invest all this money in charging, and can they charge special rates? For example, they wanted to give an overnight lower cost and a daytime higher cost, and uh, we went through this docket and we had, in, in, in that case, the public advocate uh, was on our side. Um, I, I believe that may have been the only partner on this one. And we did manage to 
provide enough evidence that the uh, they got a Delmarva got a very very small experiment to do out of the whole thing. But shortly after that, uh, the public advocate and and we and even the public service commission staff got concerned about this trend and created a second docket. And in that docket, it was a, to make a decision whether there was already a competitive market for vehicle charging and whether the Public Service Commission should, e should even be involved in setting and uh, determining uh, that the utility could do this charging. And that was the interesting docket because we wound up at, in the end, I'll tell you the end of the story, uh, it, it was declared a competitive market. The partners in that included Tesla on our side, mm -hmm. included ChargePoint. ChargePoint, most, most states or businesses that want to set up electric charging, for example, we have some convenience stores that have set up uh, pretty substantial charging stations in their, in their convenience stores. Um, they don't want to manage it. You know, they'll, they'll put the investment in, uh, they, they, they provide the, 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 the property space for it, but they don't want a management and, and charge point, charge point becomes the go-to manager. They probably have 90% of the U S market for managing charging. They came in on our side. They didn't want the, they didn't want to be competing against the utility. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, one of the reasons you don't want to compete against the utility is that guaranteed 10% profit margin. Everybody else is doing this on risk. Tesla, for example, has their own charging network for their customers of their vehicles. They, they don't want somebody else getting, uh, not having to make that investment. Mm -hmm. So you're working on this case, this uh, utility uh, uh, brings up an issue about these charging stations and you intervene in this case. Uh, what are regulated uh, regulators looking for in your in their response to these in interveners? Like, why? How can you make a persuasive case to them? Well, as I said, you wind up doing a lot of research. I, I spent between the two dockets. I spent a lot of time doing research. And for example, uh, I went in and, and did a, a thorough analysis comparing uh, the internal combustion engine versus electric vehicles for how much carbon dioxide is saved. And there have been uh, suggestions uh, from others that you're going to save a, a whole bunch of carbon dioxide over the life of one of these things. The, the, the highest estimates you tend to see are 25 tons of carbon dioxide saved for each electric vehicle. When I got done with, it, with uh, my analysis, it came down to about three or four tons. When you, when you then look at the premium cost of an electric vehicle, which tends to be in the range of sixteen dollars to $20,000 per vehicle, you wind up, in, in the case of the General Motors Bolt, which is the second best-selling vehicle after Tesla, we came up with a, the investment cost is $5,400 per ton of carbon dioxide saved. Now, we, we happen, Delaware happens to belong to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which puts a carbon tax on uh, uh, electric generation. It's currently, the allowances are selling, it's currently selling for $7 a ton. Now, let's say $7 a ton versus $5,400 per ton. 
about where would you rather put your money? If you want to get rid of carbon dioxide, where would you put it? And electric vehicles are probably the worst possible uh, place to put your money if you want to save carbon dioxide. It's just ridiculously expensive. So you, you do an analysis like that, and, and that gets their attention. And you do it based on not just my research, but you, you, know, you look at research around the world. The Union of Concerned Scientists, which is not uh, a friend of free markets, um, they came up with, I think their number was $9 a ton. Because what they did is they used life cycle. The entire, you know, when you build the car, you build the batteries, uh, you have to dispose of them at the end. Uh, all, the, all the manufacturing and materials that go into that, you wind up with, okay, this thing's going to last eight years. This vehicle's going to last eight years. Uh, the battery replacement on a Chevy Bolt is $16,000. So eight years in with 100,000 miles on it, and now you've got to put a $16,000 investment, the vehicle is basically done. So you're, you're, getting, you're going to recycle the entire vehicle, but the batteries have no way to be recycled at this point. So you look at the life cycle, and that cuts that $25 down to nine, and then you look at the, the, the assumptions the union of concerned scientists used, and you say, uh, okay, you didn't consider the actual grid mix of what how electricity is going to be supplied. You didn't consider the fact that when you use electricity to uh, uh, from a regional grid, you're losing 20% between line loss, and there's a huge conversion for loss from DC to AC or from AC to DC, which the batteries use. So you know you start considering factors like that, and that nine tons goes down to four. So you present a good enough case, uh, and you and you can. There's a number of arguments, but you can do with the same thing with each piece. So in this case, then uh, utility provider said, "Here's why we think this is a good idea." Um, uh, you intervened and said, "Wait a second, this this thing might, might actually cost a lot more." And the regulator, uh, the regulators, the uh, the five people on the on the public service commission have to say, "All right, who do we who are we going to believe, or how does that work?" Exactly. You've got to you've got to convince each of those. And luckily, having worked with them at this point for seven or eight years, you've got to get to know the individuals and you've got to know their their individual trigger points. Uh, so you, you make the case. And in this case, we had the Public Service Commission staff. We had uh, the public advocate. We had Tesla. We had uh, ChargePoint. On the other side, we had the NRDC which is the only time they've ever intervened in Delaware. Um, and you had the Sierra Club and you had the uh, Delaware Environmental Group were on the other side. Uh, we made a more convincing case and particularly having Tesla and ChargePoint there was just uh, really helpful. And we didn't bring them in, they came in on their own. But they see a, they see a national trend. I mean, there are, there are probably 10 states, a dozen states that have faced these issues. And we were now we're one of three. Uh, Vermont beat us to it. They declared it a, a competitive charging market. And I, I can never remember if it was Kansas or Kentucky. One of those two states has also done it. And one of my uh, efforts is to get other state policy think tanks involved. And we do this uh, across the country. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into this role where you're a nonprofit advocate on technical regulatory issues to a technical uh, board that sets electricity policy? It seems like a strange place to get there. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, now, here, here's the real story. Uh, back in back in 2010, when I was just being recruited to work with the Caesar Rodney Institute, uh, there were four centers uh, that we had anticipated. What we did is we went out and said, "All right, let's get the Delaware budget, and and let's look at what the biggest needs are in Delaware." And we came up with uh, four. Uh, energy was one. We also were looking at education, uh, health policies, and just the state budget in general. And uh, it was kind of, I had worked at the DuPont company for 23 years. And during that time, I was one of the people that helped start the entire solar industry. We also had activities in the wind industry. And I had been studying climate change on my own for a decade. So I got, I got to straw <laughs> and became the energy expert. From there, it, it's really a matter of taking a lifetime of experiences. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time in sales and marketing and communication. So you take those skills, you do the research, you, you do this enough, you get practiced at it. And, uh, I, you know, at this point, without a PhD, I've got a PhD in, in, in electric industry. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's an interesting point about policy analysis is that, sure, research is important. It's vital. It's what we do. But you have to have some sales skills. In this case, it, you've got to sell five people on an idea. And there's a lot of people trying to sell them the opposite. Exactly. Well, you also made the, the, you know, the point you just made. Uh, unfortunately, I know a lot of researchers around the country. Uh, I helped found the Energy and Environment Center for the State Policy Network. And there are a lot of people who feel, um, and even in Caesar Art, the Caesar Rodney Institute, there are people that feel, okay, I do the research, I publish it, this makes so much sense, I shouldn't have to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And they go on to the next project. I've always been action oriented, and uh, which is um, actually after leaving DuPont, I became a serial entrepreneur. Between DuPont and, my, and here, I've started 13 businesses. So I'm kind of uh, action oriented. So uh, the research for me is just to, all right, what do we need to do? And here's the backing I need to get it done. Uh, now I'm going to spend most of my time accomplishing it. And it's frustrating. I mean, 2011, that first case on fuel cells, uh, it's a, it was a 25-year contract that was signed. I'm still trying to kill it. Uh, <laughs> I, I just wrote a piece yesterday about it. So, you know, a decade later, I'm still fighting that battle. Eventually, I'm going to win it. <laughs> So where can people follow your work? Well, CaesarRodney.org uh, is, is where a lot of it's published. And uh, uh, you can reach me at uh, David Stevenson at CaesarRodney.org. It's my email address. And I, I'm actually tasked uh, in, in the Caesar Rodney Institute to educate other think tanks. I've been up to Maine. I've been to Michigan, Minnesota. I've helped out in Virginia and more recently Pennsylvania, so and and Mississippi. So just to give you an idea, oh Maryland too. Actually, I've testified in the Maryland uh, uh, House. So uh, you, uh, I like to do this. Uh, I like mentoring and uh, I like training. We I have an entire uh, set of. Uh, uh, documents to go through a training session of how to how to be an intervener in a utility commission docket so we're looking for other states to help mm -hmm. 
So, David, congratulations on shifting the window in Delaware and for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.